Good day, everyone, and welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast where we interview life science luminaries. I'm your host, Carlton Moore, Laboratory Application Specialist of Artel, and today we are chatting with the new SLAS Scientific Director, Marshall Brennan. Welcome, Marshall. Hey, how's it going? It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, wonderful. So just for the sake of inclusivity, I use the pronouns he and him. Which ones are you comfortable using? I also use he, him. Excellent. Now we've got all of the formalities out of the way. Now let's have fun. So Marshall, where are you coming from before you joined SLAS as the new scientific director? Now, personally, I usually frame it as, you know, from the womb to now, what have you been doing? <laughs> but I don't expect you to have that much time to tell me all that. So pick up wherever feels comfortable and just give us as much background as possible. Well, it was a warm summer day in 1989. <laughs> I, uh, um, no, so I, uh, my career uh, started as a lab scientist. I got my uh, bachelor's degree in chemistry, worked in the pharmaceutical industry, went off to graduate school uh, at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and did physical organometallic chemistry. Did, went on to postdoc at the University of Texas and did more applied catalysis work. And then the, what people probably more recognize me for, I started my uh, career into publishing and scientific products. So I, my first job out of my postdoc uh, was as an associate editor for Nature Chemistry. And so I handled peer review and a whole uh, slew of subjects uh, at that journal. Then I went on and founded ChemArchive uh, with ACS. And so ChemArchive is a preprint server. Uh, and I was responsible for uh, building that platform uh, from zero submissions up to when I left, we were at about uh, 12,000 uh, and 15 million downloads. Actually, probably more than that by the time I uh, called it quits there. In addition to that, I was responsible uh, for education products and uh, new platforms and products that uh, extended beyond normal journal space. And so deciding that I wanted to get back closer to the science and really directly help scientists do what they do best, that's what brought me to SLAS less than two weeks ago. Wow, that was a lot. <laughs> but no, very, very comprehensive. That's great to know. So, wow. Um, all right, now that you're getting back into the sciences, I guess... Who got you into the sciences at first? Was this like a great teacher? Was it a family member, a friend? You know, where, where did that all come from? Yeah, so my uh, history with uh, becoming a scientist was fraught with not getting the right push from the right people until arguably much later than I really needed it. So my uh, father is, my adoptive father rather, is a uh, high school science teacher. And so uh, he taught chemistry and physics and I was in his class for that. And chemistry was actually my worst uh, subject in school, uh, at least in high school. And so somehow at that time, despite uh, doing less stellar and it was one of my favorite subjects and yet it didn't occurred to me that I should go to school for it. So I went to school, college, um, originally for journalism. And I decided that that wasn't really the thing that I wanted to focus all my time on. I flirted with a whole bunch of different subjects, but ultimately ended up getting into chemistry kind of by accident. Like I kind of kept dancing around it. Um, And so I um, was uh, trying to get into the physics program. And the professor that was in charge of uh, transfers there said, look, you're going to have to take another year of school if you uh, transfer in just with what you have. Um, You're going to have to... 
go back and take the uh, at least a general chemistry. And so I ended up talking to a professor at, at Northeastern, my undergrad institution, named Rain Curse. And uh, he was, said, you know, look, if you become a chemistry major, I'll let you audit general chemistry. We'll give you credit for having taken the class, but we just won't give you the credit hours. So it'll accomplish what you were. So my brilliant plan was I was going to become a chemistry major, get the credit, or at least a requirement checked off, and then switch into physics and make out like a bandit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what uh, like, I think that Professor Kurse knew and I hadn't quite realized was that chemistry was really capturing me more and more. The more I did it, uh, the more I studied it on my own, the more I got drawn in. And so by the time I got to the point where I would have otherwise changed majors, I realized, you know what, I'm just going to stick with chemistry. And it's been uh, smooth sailing since then. And so, yeah, the people who were really responsible were, you know, my my father, uh, because, you know, even, you know, he, uh, though he didn't give me the push I needed to actually go and study it, you know, he has always given me all of the, the resources and and, uh, you know, challenges I could do to get into that. Uh, and then it was Professor Curse who really finally just like, you know, I think he knew what was going on and I think he knew how, what needed to be pushed to get me to arrive at that decision myself. But he was the one who really guided me, not just into chemistry, but into the specific subfields of chemistry that really took hold. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you know what? It's funny because I, I attribute my jump into the sciences to my high school physics teacher as well. He wasn't my dad. But uh, definitely influential in uh, pushing me. So, you know, it's just great to see that, you know, teachers who care and are, you know, influential to students make great chemists in the end. Because it's so funny, it being your weakest subject, now it's one of your strongest uh, abilities. Yeah. No, and it, it was great because, you know, that first sense of really grappling with it, I think that was what caused me to sort of feel that, I don't know, a chip on my shoulder, if you will, mm-hmm. and maybe sink my teeth into it more. And so, you know, even though I struggled with it at first, it ended up being something that just really clicked and worked. And like, again, it comes down to having good role models in that case. And so, you know, while I probably would have been a faster track into chemistry to just be told, hey, you should probably study chemistry, I think I was a lot better off as a student now as a professional for being forced to come to my own conclusion there. <laughs> Definitely, you know, they, they can lead you to water, but you have to be the one to drink. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how do you think your experience, uh, I guess we can go back from, you know, high school and when all those influential people really started to, you know, shape you a little bit. Um, how do you think your experiences through life have set you up for this new position to lead a SLAS education program? Right. So what's been kind of characteristic of my career to this point, whether you look at my time um, pre-PhD where I was you know, working on a bunch of different subjects, I ran an uh, NMR lab at one point, I uh, mentioned that I worked in pharmaceuticals, um, I did you know, inorganic, organic chemistry, etc. You know, even as a PhD, I dabbled in projects you know, in material sciences and whatnot. Actually, my, my most cited paper is actually not with my PhD advisor. It's with uh, someone who I was just helping out on a, a project with, and that's one of my favorite papers to, to talk about, really. And then, you know, up through into the world of publishing is that, you know, I have a really diverse uh, set of experiences. And so you could, you know, it feels a little bit diminishing, but I'm kind of a, a jack of all trades, master of none. And I think what I've actually mastered as a result of that is being 
relatively good at picking up diverse scientific subjects pretty quickly. So I'm not going to go out there and cure cancer, but I think I can talk to pretty eloquently with the people uh, who are involved in that field if you know I spend enough time you know getting to know it. And so that's kind of where uh, I ended up, you know. When I was developing things like ChemArchive, I wanted to serve as broad a population of scientists as possible. And now at SLAS, where you know setting the vision for a scientific program and uh, you know setting the course for these journals, having a broad perspective and the ability to adapt, those are the skills that I've honed that I think are what are going to ultimately serve me in this role. Nice. Excellent. So you briefly mentioned your most cited paper. Um, and, and I'm just out of curiosity, must know, what is it? So my most cited paper is with the Kathy Murphy Lab at the University of Illinois. Uh, and it has to do with uh, the distance dependence of the groups that you put on the surface of a gold nanorod. And so the idea was trying to see uh, if the plasmon wavelength uh, varied depending on how closely you put these groups to the surface of the nanorod. Um, and so it's a simple experiment. And we kind of just assumed that uh, it had been done, but it turned out nobody had studied this. And we came up with a really beautiful look into uh, how the structure of the things you coat the surface of the nanorods with affects the activity of the resulting material. Um, and so it's a straightforward set of experiments, um, and it's a really lovely paper uh, with my uh, colleague uh, Nardine Abadir, and I'm super proud of it. And it's, like I said, uh, far more uh, cited than anything that actually appeared in my PhD thesis. <laughs> That was a succinct roundup of what the paper was about. A lot of it flew over my head, so don't worry about that. But, you know, I have Google to help me parse through some of those words later. So I'll get back to you when I have something to add. <laughs> so, uh, all right, now we've spoken about your achievement with your great paper and all the other amazing things you've done. But what has been the most exciting lab moment or professional accomplishment that you've experienced? So my most proud achievement in the lab. So the one that is probably most relevant to the SLAS audience was the look on my PhD advisor's face the first time I uh, showed her the output from a ChemSpeed robot. Um, she had been in Germany and uh, didn't even know that the department had one. And so when she came back and I showed her a thousand experiments, she just didn't really believe what was happening. Um, but my real most proud achievement in lab that is you know the honest answer was the the first time that my uh, undergraduate trainee so i had this student dong young kim who worked for me for many years when i was a phd student the first time that he successfully grew a crystal and he had gone through the work of making the molecule and going in the lab and setting up the crystallization and then he did this thing that he thought was impossible that he made a crystal that was good enough uh, to get an x-ray structure of, seeing the look on his face as it clicked to him that not only was it something that was exciting that he read about in books, but that he could do and he could do it professionally. That is the proudest moment that I have because it wasn't just about what I was doing in the lab. It was what I, as a part of the scientific community, could do by spreading knowledge and skills and uh, helping you know young people find their way in science. Oh, man. I feel like that should go on like a graduation card or something. But it's just so like beautiful, but uh, at the same time, it's real because it's almost full circle. Like your dad was your high school teacher and kind of greased the wheels and got things in motion. 
And then now you fast forward a few years and you're pretty much doing the same thing in a different space. So it's just amazing how everything comes full circle. Yeah, and I think that's part of why I take my mentorship responsibility so seriously. You know, I have been lucky that at least in my lab career, I had a lot of really amazing undergraduate researchers uh, assisting me, and um, you know, I I feel obligated to that because you know people help me, you know, get the opportunities and training to do the things I do. That paying that forward is the least I can do. And so, um, you know, I definitely encourage any students that are interested in anything I've done or, you know, just are looking to sort of, you know, make heads or tails of what a career in science can look like to reach out to me. Because I I really prioritize um, trying to help people out because, you know, it's uh, all of this uh, advice I've got knocking around in my skull is only, you know, good to me in retrospect. So I may as well, you know, pass some of it on, right? Absolutely. I definitely agree. So as the new scientific director at SLAS, uh, what are you most excited about for your new position? Oh, man, there is a lot to be excited about. Now, first, uh, I've got a group of excellent colleagues, uh, both in terms of the society staff and uh, the volunteers that work with the society. So that is a lot to look forward to because it's a really excited, engaged group of people. But you know, we've got a lot of potential with both the journals uh, really expanding their role in the community and in the society and really um, helping people uh, communicate knowledge um, in a more impactful way. Um, and then with the education programs, you know, I just said how seriously I take that. And I think we've got a lot of excellent resources and I'm really hoping um, that, you know, with my um, colleagues at SLAS, we can make that uh, those lessons that were so critical to me as a young scientist uh, more readily available um, and do so in a uh, inclusive way so that you know if we make them available at our meetings and online and you know through those various delivery mechanisms you know we can make those resources available to more people uh, than uh, could ever access them before plays into the whole full circle thing where it's like Doing good and giving back at the same time. It's, it's there. There is a theme to my career. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You know what? That's beautiful. And I, I did a little bit of research on you. And I see here that you are into freelance software engineering opportunities and things like that. So I have one question. And that is knowing the knowledge that you have when it comes to uh, software engineering. Also, with your chemical background and all of the knowledge you have there, what do you see for the future when you combine software engineering as well as science? And where do you think that's going to be in the next, you know, 20 or 30 years? Where do you think we will be as, you know? So this actually relates uh, really nicely back to a conversation on this podcast that I had recently uh, with uh, Dosh from Radix Labs, where you know he and I were talking about you know like what it means to think like a computer or to think about think like a software developer when you're designing experiments, right? And so you know at this point you know science is the scientific method is pretty mature, and we're you know, we're focusing on the idea of what is discovery and how do we do science in a way that gets us the right results faster. You know, the the days of um, waiting for human ingenuity to come uh, to catch up with 
what we need from the world right. um, are you know that's not a, a pace that we can we can rely on in a world where we need COVID vaccines at a moment's notice and we need you know treatments for different uh, diseases before they you know claim people's uh, lives and you know new materials that'll ultimately makes people's lives better and the technology we have advance faster and so realistically the human brain is capable of a lot of things but we can augment uh, what we can do as researchers by using things like computers, right? So knowing how to not just uh, use a robot to do a ton of experiments, but to really understand the flow of how to systematically run experiments to gather a lot of data, but high quality data. So not just using robots as um, carbon copies of ourselves that never sleep and eat, but really using uh, these technologies to generate genuine knowledge and insights in ways that we haven't seen before. I think that's really the future. And AI is going to get us there. Quantum computing is going to really supercharge uh, what we can uh, do in a um, you know, a small frame of time. And the more that these tools and resources uh, get into the workflows of the science we do, uh, the more we can rely on the actual scientists mm -hmm. to generate those hypotheses and insights um, and then rely on this, these now automated and uh, high-throughput tools uh, to do the heavy lifting. And so I think the next... I don't know. I don't even necessarily think it'll take 20 years, but I think that the uh, the next frontier of science is solving the same sorts of, of uh, problems that we've been interested in for decades, but doing so with a tool set that lets us do more faster than we've ever done before. Yeah, no, this is reminiscent of the last episode I was on with Jonathan, where he was using AI to... Uh, increase the speed of drug developments and making sure they cut down on the cost. So, you know, it just, it's amazing how that the world of IT is so intertwined with science now that they're almost hand in hand. So, you know, it, it hopefully will lead to bigger and better developments and uh, on a faster timescale as well and for cheaper. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's, that's really the promise of technology and science is not, we're not replacing scientists and we're not outdating fields. What we're doing is giving, giving them better tools so that we can focus on the next frontier, so to, so to speak. And so that's super exciting. Oh, excellent. And so I know you're big when it comes to giving back to kids and you know giving them the nice little kick that they need so that they can jump out and be the next organic chemists to create something <laughs> fantastic. So what tips do you have for the younger generations of scientists that are in automation, uh, screening, data science, and the technology spaces? Yeah, so my recommendation to anyone in any field, but especially in um, the automation and discovery sciences, et cetera, is you shouldn't be afraid to try something new and to try something that's you know, considered off the beaten path for you know, what you think you're working on. The power of especially things like automation and, you know, all these science uh, subjects that uh, I mentioned previously is that they touch so many different areas and that it has so much power to be interdisciplinary and fundamental to how we do science. In a way, it's the science of science. And so exposing yourself to more than just the robotics lab, 
going in and really understanding the uh, how people are currently doing cell cultures and how you know people are making silicon wafers. That those are the insights that you can't really get cleanly from just reading papers. You really have to you know go and see how people are doing it, and you know especially if you're young and you've got the time and energy um, to really you know get in the weeds of these things. Having a diverse background um, will ultimately help you as the landscape of science evolves, as you try to determine what your next career step is and all these different things. And the difference between uh, someone who's ready for the next big thing and who isn't is the whether or not uh, the person was ready and excited uh, to move out of their comfort zone when right. the time called for it. Absolutely. No, that makes complete sense. So... Basically, kids, if you're listening, Marshall says shadow people who are doing what you think you want to do. Just stay up under them as much as possible. And also things that you don't know that you want to do. Be be willing to to say, you know what, this this person who's a neuroscientist is willing to let me hang out with them for a day. Just go buy them a coffee and just pick their brain. Just get to know get to know science as a field as opposed to just your niche of science is what I'm really getting at. Oh, so if you want to spend some time with Marshall, buy him coffee. Got it. <laughs> I, I, if for a student, I can pick up the tab for the coffee. Absolutely. <laughs> and a generous man as well. <laughs> okay, last but not least. So who are you most excited to meet and network with in SLAS? So I will have, admit something uh, freely. And I'm hoping that... Uh, you know, this uh, doesn't complicate our uh, our relationship as he, uh, you know, we get to work together as a, so him as associate editor and soon to be president. But I have been totally starstruck with Tim Spicer uh, ever since I uh, met him uh, recently. And so it was one of those things where I had known about what he's working on, you know, sort of in the periphery before we uh, had our first conversation. Um, but then we got to talking during the actually interview process for this job. Um, and he is one of the people that I am, uh, most fanboying about, uh, now that I'm actually, uh, in this role. And so I'm going to reach out to all of our two volunteers equally, and I'm going to make sure that I'm responsible about, uh, you know, not, uh, playing favorites, but I'm super, super excited to work with, uh, Tim and everyone in his uh, his sphere. Oh, Tim, I expect a free coffee coming from Marshall soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Marshall, thanks for coming on the show today. It's been great having you and everyone listening. Keep an ear out for the next episode. All right. Thank you so much.